Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to store and lock away all medications to prevent theft and keep them away from children and pets. Old medications can be disposed at Dropbox locations. Dropbox locations can be found at opioidresponse.info. I'm very glad to have you all with us for another edition of Political Rewind. I'm uh, Bill Nygut. You know, when we uh, built the panel, when we invited people to uh, be on the show today, we were um, assuming that our lead story and that what we would spend a good deal of the show talking about would be the Supreme Court case today that will look at the legality of the Affordable Care Act. And that is an important case in many, many ways. Um, and there's great political implications uh, to it, obviously. And we will talk about that. But uh, there's no question we have got to start with the latest in what's happening in the Georgia election. So um, we will get that first. Let me introduce the panel, begin that conversation. And as we move forward, we'll talk about the Affordable Care Act as well. Um, it's Tuesday, which means Tamar Hallerman, senior reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, is with us tomorrow. Tamar, you were up I assume most of the night, last Tuesday night, a week ago now, you were doing the live blog for the AJC. I hope you've had a chance to recover as much as possible. A little bit, but the state has kept me pretty busy uh, these last uh, this last week. Yeah. Can you even believe how much has happened? No. It, yeah, no. And, we're in, and we will talk about some of the elements of that in just a couple of minutes. Um, we have State Representative Mary Margaret Oliver. Uh, back with us today. And I'm really happy you're here, Mary Margaret. Thank you. Uh, you, I, I, you sent out a photograph yesterday, I mentioned to you before we went on the air, of a gorgeous mountain view in the North Georgia mountains. And it looks to me like uh, you've found a way to get a little peace in the aftermath of a very tumultuous election. But you're coming back and we're still in the middle of it. Happy to be here. It's a, it's a very beautiful spot in North Georgia. I'm really enjoying. Well, we're yeah. glad you uh, are with us. We're also, we're also joined by two constitutional law experts uh, who we're very fortunate yeah. to have being part of this show today. Uh, one of them uh, we've had on on a number of occasions, and you know him by now, Professor yeah. Fred Smith, associate professor at the Emory University School of Law. His scholarship uh, deals with the federal judiciary, constitutional law, local government. He uh, was a clerk for Justice Sona, Sonia Sotomayor in the United States Supreme Court. He's published in the Columbia Law Review, Harvard Law Review, and many other prestigious publications, legal publications. And uh, Fred was the uh, law school's outstanding professor of the year just last year. Fred, thank you so much for coming back to be with us today. Absolutely. It's always a pleasure to be here. Uh, and we're joined by, for us, on Political Rewind, a first-time guest who I was delighted when I sent out an, an invitation to him, responded quickly that he would be glad to do the show, Professor Eric Siegel. He's a graduate of Emory University, Phi Beta Kappa, summa cum laude. He graduated from Vanderbilt Law School. He was the editor of the Law Review there. Uh, he, too, teaches the federal courts in constitutional law, uh, and Eric, you're the author of, of books that show us that you are uh, a um, you ha you have a uh, an interesting view of the of the Supreme <laughs> Court, 
and we're going to hear about it today. One of your books, Originalism as Faith and Supreme Myths, Why the Supreme Court is Not a Court and Its Justices Are Not Judges. And uh, you wrote a terrific blog, which uh, you sent to me, somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but essentially uh, suggesting that this ACA lawsuit that's uh, being heard today is just so much hot air. Is that, I mean, I know that's the broadest way of stating it, but it's kind of to the point, isn't it, Eric? Well, thanks for having me. I'm really happy to join the show. Hi, everybody. Uh, Yeah, I think the thing about this lawsuit is, so Fred and I are both, I'm going to anticipate Fred is going to agree with me, the legal issues here are really frivolous and, 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 and should be easily disregarded by the court. But you don't have to believe us because there are a bunch of conservative law professors who have been fighting the ACA since 2010. They've, done no, they've spent most of their lives trying to get it struck down. And even they agree that this lawsuit should be dismissed by the Supreme Court and the ACA should stand. <laughs> Well, we will get to that in a little while. But as I said, uh, tomorrow we really have to start with kind of a blockbuster story. I think it took a lot of people's breath away when we saw it cross the wires yesterday. Um, Out of nowhere, first of all, let's point out that as of this morning, with virtually all the ballots counted, we'll hear later today what is remaining out there. Um, Joe Biden leads President Trump in Georgia by 12,427 votes. His lead has expanded. Um, So he looks more than ever uh, as if he'll be the winner of this state. So that sets up what I want to talk about now, which is yesterday we get a news release from Kelly Leffler and David Perdue, both fighting for uh, winning their runoff elections for the United States Senate calling on the Secretary of State to resign. And here is the basic statement, and then, Tamar, you comment. The management of Georgia's elections has become an embarrassment for our state. Georgians are outraged, and rightly so. We've been clear from the beginning, every legal vote cast should be counted. Any illegal vote should not. This isn't hard. This isn't partisan. This is American. And it goes on to talk about the failures that Brad Raffensperger has presided over in this election. It was, and of course, Tamar, Brad Raffensperger, the duly elected Republican Secretary of State. Tamar? Not only that, but they go on at the end of the statement to call for Secretary Raffensperger's uh, resignation. And yeah, it was it was a really stunning statement because we really haven't heard from Senators Leffler or Purdue since Tuesday. They haven't been giving any interviews. We don't really know what's in, in their heads. And it kind of shocked all of us. I was actually grabbing coffee with Greg Bluestein yesterday afternoon, kind of catching our breaths after the election, starting to plan a little bit for our runoff coverage and... <laughs> the whole conversation stopped when that email came. Oh my gosh, what is this? Um, and look, it, it, it's a pretty clear attempt to appease President Trump and his supporters right now. Um, th- this matches the rhetoric that you're seeing from Trump and his legal team right now as they file lawsuits in a bunch of states, including in Georgia. They, you know, they they slam Secretary Raffensperger for all of these failures in the the system, but they don't actually detail what those are. Um, and and it came after a a morning news conference where several elections officials kind of went down the list one by one, debunking why a lot of these claims from the Trump campaign um, aren't true. And so. 
Yeah, a pretty bold statement and kind of the sign of the civil war that we might be seeing in the Republican Party in the weeks ahead in Georgia and elsewhere. Mary Margaret, um, I, I, I want to give you a chance to weigh in. I do want to point out that when we've originally scheduled the show, I, I thought we'd be talking to you because of your experience as an attorney uh, in the state of Georgia and beyond, and, and we will. But but here you are, a Democratic member of the state legislature, and we always have to keep uh, in mind that you do have a partisan stake in all this. But, but I do want to start by, when I turn to you by saying this. We are not on this show going to fall prey to false equivalency. Um, facts are facts. And um, if some people think that um, we're being partisan, they're just plain wrong. Uh, this isn't a question of, oh, uh, Joe Biden se uh, seems to have won the White House, but President Trump says, no, in fact, he won. Um, and we're not going to play that game in terms of talking about what Leffler and Purdue have done here either. There are Republicans who can come on this show and argue why both of them should be elected to the Senate. But in this case, facts are facts. The interesting thing, Mary Margaret, is that although on this show we were quite critical of Brad Raffensperger back in the primary when, when he had terrible problems in getting the machinery, the new computers working when there were lines that stretched on endlessly in precincts in many parts of the state, we were quite critical of him. The fact, Mary Margaret, is that for that virtually everyone, Republicans and Democrats alike, say that in this general election he has done and his people have finally gotten it right. They've done an outstanding job. They've been on top of problems here and there that have popped up. And there is absolutely nothing to suggest that there's corruption or broad fraud in this election. Mary Margaret? Although I, I would love to be on the listening on the phone calls between President Trump and, and Governor Kemp. I don't think that's likely that I'll have that uh, direct information. I think that... Um, Senator Leffler and Purdue are acting in their interest in terms of a pure political lens as to what makes them look good today, look Trumpian today. We are in such an unusual time, just an impossible to predict time in my judgment, but we're clear that President Trump is a disruptor, and we're clear that he's not going to go in a, quote, normal, close quote way. It's clear that he's going to cause as much noise as he does usually and and more so. But I look at what is in the interest of Governor Kemp, what's in the interest of Senator Leffler and Senator Perdue, and from my perspective, it's a very short timetable that the public is going to uh, listen to this kind of rhetoric that does not match by the facts of Joe Biden winning Georgia. That's all there is to it. We need to have Arizona, North Carolina, and Georgia called by the AP. And I feel like that when that happens, and, and some of your folks may give a better timetable than I can on that, but when these states, three last states, are called, we'll be in a much better position to simply walk away and let President Trump go play golf and do whatever he wants to, but basically stop being a significant disruptor. He'll be a daily disruptor, but not a substantive disruptor is what I hope it will play out the next day and weeks. Fred, I want to quote something that you told the class of 2019 when you were awarded uh, most valuable uh, law professor, outstanding law professor. You said this, 
Law comes with the fragility, the vulnerability of humanity. The law only works when people believe in it, have faith in it, and deem the law to be legitimate. You get to choose what values and people you choose to be trustees for. I hope you'll be part of justice being done. That's uh, an applicable uh, statement, it strikes me today, as we're watching uh, here in Georgia and across the country the uh, Trump campaign tried to uh, uh, counterbalance the results of this election. Yeah, no, there was to that end, right? There was a really interesting story um, in the New York Times uh, and maybe some other sources too um, around law firms uh, like Jones Day and some of the internal debates um, that they're having, right? Um, I mean, I think a lot of law firms pride themselves on uh, on having bipartisan rosters and uh, and and being open to um, uh, to representing people of various political parties and so forth, um, you know. But to your point, uh, when it comes to uh, facts, they really do uh, matter here. Uh, and um, you know, you, you're seeing this moment in which um, you know there was this Fox News clip uh, yesterday where they kind of had, they had to pull away from the press conference or chose to pull away from the press conference at the White House. Um, because of inaccuracies that were being stated. Uh, so this is, um, this is about facts, uh, and, and I do hope that, um, that lawyers across the board, um, both here and, and more broadly, will think about um, what values they want to be trustees for um, and, uh, and whether they want to be on the side of facts. Yeah, I'm. I'm probably more worried than other people uh, on this show today. I read the. I read the, the Pennsylvania complaint that was filed last night is 125 pages long, but there's one paragraph, paragraph 14 of that complaint, that I think is legally ridiculous, but the optics of which I think might play with Trump's base and possibly others, and I'm really worried about this. What the Republican Party is going to argue, I think, nationally, eventually is that we had a pandemic, nobody's fault. There was chaos and confusion, nobody's fault. Um, I think they're going to end up retracting claims of fraud because they're not going to be able to prove that at all. But the allegation in paragraph 14 was that Pennsylvania had two different sets of rules, one rule for in-person voting and one rule for mail-in voting. To vote in person, according to the complaint, you had to do all these things that we're used to in Georgia, show your ID, you know, have someone check it, you know, it's checked twice, all that stuff. The complaint alleges that the mail-in ballots didn't go through that kind of rigorous check. Now, I think there's very little facts behind this. I think there's very little law behind this. But we're not in a world now where law matters. We're in a world where politics matters. We learned that with Bush versus Gore. We learned it in the 1876 election. Um, we've learned it through many contested elections. And I am quite concerned that that piece of rhetoric that we had two elections this time. We had a mail-in election and we had a in-person election and the, and the ballots were treated differently in each is an argument that um, I'm, I'm nervous that some Republican judge somewhere who is forum shopped will accept. And if we go back to 2012, we'll remember that the broccoli argument for the Affordable Care Act, which just about all law professors, liberal and conservative, with the exception of just a few, thought was frivolous, ended up being accepted because a few crazy district court judges accepted it. Then the 11th Circuit accepted it. And these things have a way of snowballing. So I'm probably more worried than, than other people on this panel. 
So, by the way, the broccoli argument was that if the federal government can force you to get health care insurance, they can force you to eat your broccoli <laughs> tomorrow. I was interviewing a political science professor last week about some of these, these fraud claims that have emerged over the last couple of days. And he mentioned, look, even if you know, there's not a ton of evidence about widespread fraud at the end of the day, it almost doesn't matter. If enough voters believe what they're hearing, whether it's true or not, the effect is is still the same. And and I think there are long-term implications for this when it comes to trust in this, this key institution of American voting. At the same time, it, there is a risk in terms of what Senators Leffler and Purdue are doing here when it comes to their own runoffs. It's very possible that by alleging uh, you know, fraud and irregularities, they could hurt Republican turnout in the January 5th runoff. If, if enough people don't think their votes are going to be heard, it's very possible they decide to, to stay home. So that could have real implications for their reelection bids. So, Mary Margaret, I want to give you the floor. But before I do, let me just throw out what strikes me as sort of a fatal flaw in all of these arguments that are being made, Leffler and Purdue here, <laughs> Uh, the Trump campaign in uh, other states, they've already lost the lawsuit or the lawsuit they tried to file here in Georgia was thrown out summarily in Chatham County. Um, And and it's this. Um, If if Leffler and Purdue believe that Brad Raffensperger oversaw a flawed election, uh, they don't accuse him of fraud, but they do say that he failed to deliver a transparent and fair election. So if they're questioning the returns in this election. Why are we to believe that Kelly Leffler, in fact, won more votes than Doug Collins and therefore is in the runoff for seat number two? Why should we not believe that, in fact, uh, David Perdue uh, really did win 90,000 more votes in the general than John Ossoff, and there's a runoff there, too? I, I don't understand how you can take parts of an election and say they were fraudulent or untra- untransparent uh, and, uh, and, and others and say they were perfectly legitimate. It strikes me as a fatal flaw in the entire argument being made all over the country right now. The, the reality is that political scientists and consultants both are, are examining these results in, in details and details and details, trying to figure out what happened on Tuesday the 3rd, and what does it matter going forward? The Republican talking points have focused on the uh, vulnerability of absentee ballots. I hear that on a daily basis. That's a message that's been very consistent, uh, where you focus on no exact match, where you focus on no ID. That's been an ongoing conversation for a couple of years. And as I went to some of the court hearings on exact match, just by example, the differentiation between, quote-unquote, either human error, intentional fraud, or just a screw-up on exact match just never got anywhere. The differentiation, Eric, I'm really responding to you, the differentiation between um, problems with absentee ballots, rules with absentee ballots, reality of absentee ballots versus in person, I think is too old an issue for the court to pick up now. We have too many states to do uniform absentee ballot. We have What we have is a disruptor and an irresponsible voice in the presidency who is no longer going to be president after January 20th at noon, uh, trying to get his last uh, hurrah of attention. I have a hard time 
maybe I'm being naive. I'm, I'm not often naive, but maybe I am being naive that the federal court is going to give any credence to no factual basis, no provable basis that whatever they're alleging would change the election. Because I believe that's a basic premise, correct me if I'm wrong, that whatever you're alleging was wrong with the uh, election procedures by intent or by human error or by just normal screw-ups of machines, you have to show a a way to change the election in order to be taken seriously on top of real evidence, neither of which they have. Fred, jump in, and then i got to ask you a question, Eric. Yeah, I mean, there's so much to think about there. Uh, so my first response is not really a, a legal response. It's just a, and this is something that uh, the representative Oliver will remember much better than me. But uh, back in 2002, uh, when Republicans took um, the state Senate and took the state House, um, this is one of the very first things they did. One of the very first things that they did was require a photo ID to vote in person. They increased the amount of money that it costs to get a photo ID from uh, to $35. And at the same time that they made that a requirement and that they made it more difficult to vote with, uh, to obtain an, uh, a photo ID, they also made it easier to vote absentee. Uh, because back then, uh, the norm was that, for whatever reason, uh, uh, folks who voted absentee tended to vote Republican. And so, um, and so 18 years later, uh, it's just impossible for me to hear some of this without thinking about how we got here uh, and, and sometimes how cynical some of these arguments um, really are. Um, you know, in terms of the merits of the, of the various claims, right? I mean, I, I agree that the claim that, that, that there's some difference between absentee ballots and, and, uh, and in-person ballots that creates any sort of meaningful constitutional problem um, is, is frivolous uh, and would have such consequences across the board that it is very difficult to imagine a court accepting it. There, there is an argument that Justice Alito and Justice Thomas in particular have shown some interest in over the last few weeks. Uh, and it's really in particular out of litigation uh, arising out of Pennsylvania. Um, and that claim is that uh, the state courts there essentially rewrote the rules uh, because we were in a pandemic, right? That the rules, uh, when you read state law, the rules say A uh, and state courts instead uh, interpreted the rules to mean B. Uh, and that that, that the state court's reading of state law was so implausible um, that they essentially rewrote the state law. And the reason why that would be important, uh, if one accepted that, um, is because under the election clause, it's up to state legislatures uh, to create um, the various rules uh, for, uh, for elections. Uh, and so that would create a federal constitutional uh, issue. Uh, but again, the only two justices who have expressed uh, any interest in that particular argument are Justice Alito and Justice Thomas, of course, uh, in and of itself, um, not enough. Uh, and Justice uh, Chief Justice Roberts uh, is, uh, has expressed um, uh, on the record, uh, in, in his opinions, um, uh, considerable doubts about that claim. All right. So thank you for that, because that Pennsylvania uh, case got an enormous amount of attention. I was under the impression that there was a chance that the court was thinking they might, in fact, take that up in a a full hearing following the election that it was worth exploring. Have I got that wrong, Fred? Well, it is Justice Thomas and Justice Alito uh, have expressed. We don't we don't know who else uh, on the court feels that way. But the chief justice has uh, has 
has expressed ex- uh, significant doubts about that argument because of the federalism implications Eric, of second-guessing state courts' interpretation of their own state law. Eric, I really uh, want to pick up on your concerns. I, I, you said that you think perhaps you're, you're more concerned than, than a lot of people uh, are about the implications of some of these cases. And, and what I, I think I need to hear you help expand upon is what are the remedies and what do you see down the road if, in fact, there is a judge in a jurisdiction who chooses to accept the broccoli uh, defense, as you called it? What, what, I mean, we're, to what extent can an election be overturned? What other remedies are there, whether that's a case in Pennsylvania or Arizona or anywhere else the Trump people are challenging the results? Well, a couple of things. First, Fred, I might be wrong, but I think Kavanaugh wrote a long ode to Bush versus Gore, Justice Rehnquist's opinion in that case, which was the same argument that Alito and Thomas were accepting. So I think it's three justices. And I and I'm so that's I, I think Gorsuch actually may go for that, too. And Lord knows what Judge Barrett's going to do. Uh, Bill, my concern is not so much that there's going to eventually be a time when the Supreme Court recreates Bush versus Gore this year. I mean, I think it's more possible than most people think. People forget that the equal protection argument in Bush versus Gore was that state counties were treating the you know, ballots differently within one state. But that was true in like 30 states at the time <laughs> and had been true forever. And the court invented this new legal theory, you know, that was just really kind of crazy. Uh, even if it wasn't crazy, it, it was done all over the country. So if it if really accepted, it would have thrown that whole election out of whack. But I'm not that worried about this court doing that. I don't think they will. I am worried that once one or two partisan Republican judges accept some of these theories, then it has a tendency to snowball. And all of a sudden, conservative law professors will start play, paying lip service to I mean, nationally known conservative law professors will start paying lip service to it. And then and then the base can get more riled up. And I agree with Mary Margaret and I disagree with Mary Margaret. I agree with her about Trump 100 percent. We know who he is, what he is. He he was told by Roy Cohn, who your listeners may or may not know, was Joe McCarthy's right hand man and one of the worst Americans of the last 50 years before he died. Roy Cohn taught Donald Trump never give up, never concede ever, no matter what, under any circumstances. So I think we are in a period between now and January 20th that we haven't seen, I guess, really since the 1876 election. And um, I am very nervous about the disruption that this kind of rhetoric can cause. Uh, And and here in Georgia, I've been trying to figure out, and I'm not a politician, I don't have very much insights into this, but I'm trying to figure out why, why they would do this, why Purdue and Leffler would actually take this pretty radical step of calling out a Republican secretary of state, which, by the way, I think reflects on the governor as well. Right. I mean, I think this this is a reflection of the whole Republican administration. And I think what's going on here is Trump and McConnell and Barr are willing to totally remake the Republican Party. I think I mean, they already have, but I think they're willing to leave all moderates out. And I, I think they're planning something pretty terrible. And and, and I want to end by just saying we're better off preparing for the possibility of something terrible than ignoring it and saying, oh, it'll, it'll all work out. Because Trump has proven we should not underestimate his ability to disrupt. 
and um, on social so media tomorrow- yesterday. So one last thing. A lot of people got mad at me for saying that kind of thing, saying don't pay lip service to it, you know, just ignore it. It's all talk. I don't think that's true, and I think that's very dangerous. I apologize, Eric. I didn't mean to cut no you off. Um, tomorrow and Mary Margaret, uh, let's talk for a minute. We got to take a break, but what, you know, this is an important conversation, and so we'll talk ACA in a little okay. while. But, but tomorrow, I'm I'm still trying to understand the political implications of Leffler and Purdue's statement. Um, we do believe your colleagues at the AJC have written that it does appear that President Trump pressured them into making this statement to uh, help solidify his argument that elections in states like Georgia have been taken from him illicitly. Um, but, you know, I, I, can, I could see both sides of this. I could see this as firing up the base uh, after Joe Biden becomes president, uh, as he's named, once the certification is over and we know for a fact that Biden is president, Trump is lost, I could see the Republican base being fired up by this sort of rhetoric and rushing to the polls to vote to make sure that Leffler and Purdue are there as a counterbalance against Biden. On the other hand, as you pointed out, I could imagine Republicans also, on the other hand, saying, well, if it's already rigged, why should I even bother to vote? It's kind of a risky uh, strategy. And I'm curious, talk about it tomorrow. And then, Mary Margaret, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Well, one thing that's clear, you know, I was wondering, if we, we, as we mentioned earlier, Biden is up by about 12,000 votes here in Georgia. And, you know, part of me wondered, given the president's loss, um, whether Leffler and Purdue would be as strongly pro-Trump as they have been over the last year or two in the Senate. Uh, and it's clear that they are still going to run as close to, to President Trump as they possibly can. It is still his party, especially here in Georgia. And despite his apparent loss uh, in the White House, um, they're going to continue to to take that rhetoric. And it'll be interesting to see how involved President Trump is going to want to be over the next couple of weeks in Georgia. You know, he's still going to be in office through, you know, through January 20th. So that that includes the runoff period. Will he come and try and campaign for, for Leffler and Purdue? And if he does, I still think that could be a very formidable help to them, uh, to, to Leffler and Purdue uh, in, in the runoff. So I think they're kind of banking on those diehard Trump supporters to come out again, especially if the president's stays engaged. Mary Margaret, we got to get to a break, but why don't you go ahead and make a few comments? Uh, I'm watching Justice Roberts. Oh, and we'll circle back to him in a second. And I'm watching Mitch McConnell. Uh, those are the two individuals that matter most to me in terms of predicting to whatever extent we can predict in this unusual time what happens next. Leffler and Purdue um, did the bidding of President Trump but I have no opinion, I have no confidence that that is going to be what's in their interest tomorrow or next week. All right. Thank you for that. Look, we've got to get to a break. When we come back, we'll have a, just a little more on this. And then I promise I do want to talk ACA with our constitutional uh, legal experts. We'll do that after these messages. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon.
Professor Eric Siegel from Georgia State University's College of Law, Professor Fred Smith from the Emory University School of Law, Representative Mary Margaret Oliver and Tamar Hallerman are with us. We've got really, really outstanding legal minds with us uh, on the show today. I do have to ask one more question. Uh, and I really want to try to do this relatively quickly because there'll be time to talk about it again. About it again. Eric Siegel, uh, let me introduce two words that I wonder if we need to be worrying about in states like Georgia if, in fact, we've got candidates like Leffler and Purdue willing to thwart the work that's being done by the Secretary of State. Faithless electors. Does Georgia still allow faithless electors? <laughs> um, I actually, I'm not sure the answer to that question. Um, but I, I do think I, I'm not as worried about faithless electors as I'm worried about Republican state legislatures. I think one of the plans here, I don't think it'll work, is, is for Trump nationally to spread so much concern about the election and the reliability of the election that eventually and retroactively state legislatures can say, we don't think there was a fair election. We're going to give you this far slate of electors like in Pennsylvania or, or, or Michigan. Um, I don't think that'll work, but I think we should be on the lookout for that argument. And, that's, and that is an argument that Fred, I think we'll, we'll, oh. we'll get Kavanaugh and Alito and Thomas. Fred? Yeah, so I mean, in in Georgia at least, right? I mean, if you look at the list of, <laughs> of electors, they include Stacey Abrams and uh, Kimo Williams uh, and, uh, and Kathy Willard, among others. So, uh, so I, I I don't have any uh, any fears on that particular front. Yeah. So, in other words, it's going to be the Democratic slate of electors who will vote in the Electoral College. There won't be any Republicans in there. And to the best of our knowledge, there is no conservative Democrat, Mary Margaret, who would want to jump in. I just that always comes up. And so I think it's worth at least mentioning Mary Margaret. Okay. Yeah, but the electoral folks on the list are very solid Democrats, and I'm very sure they're going to be 100 percent for Joe Biden. Uh, I'm sorry. Okay, I, good. We I, don't have I, to even Bill, worry about it. Bill, yeah. Bill, I think that's going to be true nationally. Sure. The issue is not faithless electors. The issue is faithless Republican legislators. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Let us turn, uh, as we said we would do, uh, to spend a little time on this case in front of the Supreme Court right now. Uh, today on uh, the Affordable Care Act. First of all, Tamar, I was really pleased you were going to be on this show because you were right in the thick of it when you were the Washington correspondent for the uh, Atlanta Journal-Constitution, watching the 2017 work in uh, Congress to undo uh, provisions of the ACA. What, what What happened in 2017 that you were working on? Sure. I mean, well, well, Republicans in the House were able to, this is, of course, when Republicans had majorities in both the House and the Senate. In the House, they were able to pass a bill repealing the ACA, but in the Senate, they were having a heck of a time with it. And they ended up uh, trying about four different plans to try and repeal all of the law, parts of the law, to have certain, you know, different replacement plans in place. And they, they famously came within one vote of repealing the law in the Senate at a vote in about two in the morning with David Perdue presiding over the the chamber and, you know, John McCain with his earth shattering thumbs down uh, yeah. vote at the end of the night that that kind of messed that up. And what surprised everyone was a couple months later, as Republicans were, were preparing to um, pass their tax cut bill, 
uh, the, the final version that they were able to include, um, ha- or sorry, that they were able to pass, had a provision in there zeroing out the penalty for um, for not having insurance under the Affordable Care Act. So, um, you know, one of the the central tenets of the law was that there was a penalty that that kind of nudged people into getting insurance. So once you zeroed that out, there was a fear that because of that, the whole law might might crumble. There, there's talk of a three-legged stool, which I'm sure, um, sure, which I'm sure Fred and um, and Professor Siegel will be able to to talk about. That that kind of underpinned the law, and there was a fear that that would would be the law's downfall. But so far, that hasn't been the case. But that's what's going to be litigated at the court today. All right. So it strikes me, Eric, that there are three fundamental questions that the court is going to be asked to deal with. And I think that's right. Um, Tamar uh, basically led us in the direction of one of them. Uh, And we should point out one of the reasons this is of interest to us here in Georgia is because Attorney General Chris Carr and the state of Georgia are among the 18 state litigants uh, in this case calling for the law to be thrown out. Um, Okay. So part of the question is, I think I've got it right, Eric, is that when there was a penalty uh, for you're not buying insurance uh, and the individual mandate, the tax was zeroed out, Congress does have the right to levy taxes, uh, but it doesn't have the right to establish a mandate. That's one of the arguments here. So what that means is the minute you throw out the penalty, the tax, then Congress no longer has the right uh, to enforce Obamacare in a broader way. I know that's overly simplistic, but uh, Eric, to get you started on this, you in a great blog, and we'll post a link to it for our listeners to to read, you you talk about a federal trial judge named Reed O'Connor in Texas, who was the guy who started all this off. Talk about his impact in terms of the individual mandate. Well, so this case was form shopped to that district, hoping to get that judge because he had struck down three or four Obama era policies involving transgender, transgender students and, and other things involving the ACA. He, he hated Obama from the beginning and just loved striking down laws. Um, th- this case is really simple. The, what was a requirement to buy health insurance enforced by a tax or a penalty or a mandate, however you want to call that. The coercion part of that is all gone. Congress repealed that. That doesn't make it unconstitutional. That makes it invisible and irrelevant. The entire three-legged stool argument was that if you're going to make insurance companies um, cover pre-existing conditions, and if you're going to not let them charge more for that, then you have to have this mandate um, to get people to come into the insurance pool. Otherwise, only sick people will come into the pool and the economy will be destroyed. Uh, my colleague, Aaron Fusay-Brown, who runs Georgia State's Health Center, uh, said on All Things Considered yesterday night, last night, that it turns out the experts were wrong, that we've known now since 2017 uh, that the three-legged stool is not necessary. But none of that's even the point. The point is what did Congress want? And Congress wanted a law that existed without the mandate, and the Supreme Court is not going to say that it's not going to strike the whole law down after Congress kept the law while getting rid of the mandate. So um, there's a lot of things in, in America to be worried about right now. This case is not one of them, in my opinion. Um, Fred, uh, I want to get you into it, and you can certainly respond to some of that. But but I also think there are other questions that the court will 
is being asked to deal with. Number one, do states like Georgia, Texas, and others actually have standing to challenge uh, the ACA? Um, that's one of them. And let's ask about that and whatever else you want to weigh in. And then we got to talk about this issue of severability. Fred? Sure, right, exactly, right. So you've identified the three issues very well, right? So, uh, and I, I'm, I teach federal courts, so I tend to think about the standing question first. Uh, and so, in order for um, this case to even, for the federal courts to even have jurisdiction, then you have to have litigants who have uh, an injury, right? So, there needs to be a case or controversy in the language of Article 3 of the Constitution, and that includes uh, litigants who themselves have an injury. Um, so here, uh, there are a group of individual plaintiffs, and then there are 18 states, all of whom say that they are injured. So the, um, the individual argument is, well, we're required to purchase health insurance, uh, and so that constitutes an economic injury. Um, the argument on the other side is, no, you're not required to purchase health insurance. There's literally a penalty of zero. Uh, and then the, the individual litigants, the argument back is, well, we really like to follow the law. So even though there are no consequences to whether or not we buy health insurance or not, we like to follow the law, and so since we are buying health insurance, we're injured uh, from out of our pockets. Um, and so, so that's one argument that, uh, that's being made on the standing front. And then the states are arguing, well, if more people buy health insurance because they're encouraged to or because they're required to, however it's understood, um, then more people are going to, uh, to take advantage of CHIP uh, and take advantage of, of Medicaid. Uh, and so as a result of that, that might constitute an economic injury. Um, these are all across the board. Um, these are really very speculative arguments. Uh, and, uh, and, and this is a court that, at least in some other contexts, has been relatively skeptical of standing. I personally have a fairly broad view of standing. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of actually inclined, to, even though they're, they, they, they're at the very out of limit, outer limit, and maybe they're just completely like over the border. Um, but um, but but with this particular court, at least in, uh, in recent years, has um, kind of has interpreted the words case or controversy relatively strictly, and, and interpreted the word injury uh, relatively strictly. Uh, and so um, so we'll you know we'll we'll see what happens. But that's the nature of the standing argument. And if the 18 states and the individual plaintiffs if they don't have standing. That's the end of the case. And you might imagine there to be some appetite for that. Um, without, they don't even have to get into any of the merits. Uh, Justice Kavanaugh, when he was on the D.C. Circuit, um, he didn't embrace a standing argument, but he did embrace another uh, jurisdictional argument uh, in order to dismiss the original uh, Affordable Care Act litigation. Um, uh, so he relied on uh, federal court's jurisdictional grounds, namely something called the Anti-Injunction Act. Uh, and so we'll, we'll see if, uh, if that, that it's entirely plausible that that's the basis um, that the court will dismiss this case. We'll just have to listen to the oral argument. The 2012 decision and the history of the litigation of ACA is enormously complex and has been unpredictable. And what worries me, even if Eric and Fred are right, which I believe, assume they're right, that the case is going to go okay, for the 2070, however many million Americans have coverage of the ACA, uh, I'm worried about it, particularly because of the unique and bad position that Georgia is in right now. The uh, obstruction, obstructionist, uh, no, not ever attitude of the Republicans to take 100% uh, of federal money to expand Medicaid under the ACA has been a marvel to watch. It seems so contrary in their interest, given that there are only a dozen states about left who don't 
fully embrace ACA and the Georgia for the benefit, financial benefit, and the Georgia waiver that has just been approved of and is kind of a big ceremony with federal people coming down to the Capitol has a very unusual provision in it um, that's very unique um, about uh, the federal government can't um, walk away from the contract it has in uh, approval of the waiver. It's a very unusual situation where Governor Kemp was trying to solidify the unique and bad Georgia plan for uh, Medicaid waiver and not give the federal government, which they anticipate could be uh, under President Biden, uh, an opportunity to renegotiate. I think that makes Georgia's situation much worse. And I'm going to come back to Justice Roberts. Uh, Justice Roberts has, uh, from my perspective, and these gentlemen, Eric and Fred, much more sophisticated, has a very strong interest in his legacy and the legacy of his court. Uh, he began with Gore v. Bush, and now he is at ACA and Donald Trump versus Biden um, with a much more conservative crowd around him. It's pretty scary. If I were Justice Roberts and I cared about my legacy, I'd be pretty worried, and I'm going to operate in a way that gives the court, Supreme Court uh, credibility for the future. Uh, we got to get to our final break of the show. We'll be back to talk more in just a moment. Welcome back to Political Rewind. We've really only got a few minutes left on today's show. A couple of quick notes. Uh, number one, uh, we've now posted uh, Eric Siegel's blog. I've got to say, Eric, your blog is really clever. It's uh, very wry in the way it's written, but it also explains, I think, uh, the situation we're in right now. And by the way, if you follow me on Twitter, it's uh, at Nigut B, N-I-G-U-T-B. I'll put a link to it up there as well. Tomorrow, um, one of the reasons that we have been waiting for this case today is since well before the election. And and even though both Fred and Eric believe that nothing is going to come of this, uh, it was all that people were talking about when Amy Coney Barrett was uh, uh, nominated to the Supreme Court. It was a big part of her hearing. She's been critical of Justice Roberts' decision on ACA to allow it to stand in the past. So there are political implications here that we're following with some uh, uh, degree of interest. Sure. And you have to think about why why Democrats were using that particular argument. Um, healthcare was such a winning cause for them in the 2018 midterms. It helped them capture control of the House. All of a sudden, the ACA is is popular, where, where for years it, it was really loathed, and especially the ACA's protections for pre-existing conditions. So they knew they couldn't go after Judge Barrett for her uh, for her uh, Catholic religion. They couldn't go after her really, you know, they, they had to tread very carefully on issues like abortion. But uh, the health care law was a really great um, kind of wedge issue for them. So she's written critically, she wrote critically about it in, in past years uh, before she was uh, nominated to the court. And, and it was kind of an easy an easy wish issue for them to capitalize on. But it sounds like, uh, at least talking to Professor Siegel and, and Professor Smith, uh, that doesn't necessarily mean the court is going to strike down the entire law based on today's case. All right. I want to give both Eric Siegel and Fred Smith and Mary Margaret one last chance, as short of time as we really are. Uh, Eric Siegel, you think it's much ado about nothing. Uh, we should watch with interest how the court uh, hears our, the arguments the court hears, but you think nothing is going to change, correct, Professor Siegel? 
Yeah, I think I'm as critical of the Supreme Court as any constitutional law professor you'll ever meet. Um, I think they're capable of anything. I think Shelby County is one of the great abominations of all time. Um, for me, the reasons Mary Margaret talked about, Justice Roberts is going to fight very hard for this case to go away in some way that keeps the ACA intact. I don't see Judge Barrett taking that on her first term. Um, I'm just not worried about this case. And I've been worried about previous cases. I actually said the broccoli argument would be accepted by the court, despite its frivolousness. Um, <laughs> but this one I'm not worried about. Fred? Yeah, no, I, I think that there's that on the standing question, on the question of whether or not uh, the individual mandate that's no longer a mandate is constitutional, the question of what happens to the rest of the law, given that Congress eradicated the mandate but kept the rest of the law. Uh, It's hard to imagine that uh, the the plaintiffs winning on all three of those arguments. So to be clear, they would have to win on all three of those arguments uh, in order to uh, in order to prevail. Uh, And but I will say more broadly, uh, you know, we don't know if the chief is still the center of the court. uh, and and that's something that that we'll have a better sense of uh, toward the end uh, of this term. That's going to be fascinating to watch. Mary Margaret? I'm very worried about the case because this litigation is going to continue in a wide variety of unpredictable ways. Uh, I'm very worried about the case, as I expressed before, because of the unique status of Georgia's waiver approval, which is a mess, in my view, not in the interest of most Georgians. And I'm very worried about it because of Mitch McConnell. My eyes are on Mitch McConnell and what is in his interest to maintain power in the slimmer majority that he's going to have, if any majority. So I am concerned about the case very much for the sake of Georgia. All right. Um, That's the final word for today's show. Representative Mary Margaret Oliver, you know it's always a pleasure to have you on. Uh, Professor Fred Smith, you as well. Eric Siegel, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, This was really a, 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 a... in a lively and smart conversation. And Eric Siegel, I'm glad you could be a part of it. Thanks for being here. Um, Tamar Hallerman, as always, see you again, I hope, next Tuesday for another Political Rewind. I'll be back again tomorrow with a brand new show. We'll continue to follow what's happening with the Georgia election and with elections across the country. And as I said, right now, facts matter more than ever. And without regard to partisanship, we have got to on this show every day, keep being on top of what the facts really are. We'll see you again tomorrow. In the meantime, take care, stay healthy, wear a mask, and hey, go get a flu shot. Bye-bye, everybody.